Rachel. Let's just uh, pray as we open up God's word. Lord, as we uh, look at this passage this morning and uh, are conscious of our need to grow and understanding uh, truth from falsehood, we are dependent on your spirit to do that. Lord, make your word clear to our hearts, encourage us, challenge us. Lord, may these words, your words, uh, dwell richly in us, in Jesus' name, amen. So I've been told by reliable sources, those who would know such things, that if you want to know if a diamond is fake, uh, apparently some people have done this, they're not in the room so I can talk about them, you can take it and put it under an x-ray machine, those with access to such things uh, can, can determine whether the, the diamond is real or not, because a real diamond does not show up on x-ray. Uh, if you have an x-ray of a diamond and you can see an outline or you can see anything about it, you know it's fake. I passed the test, apparently, thankfully. Getting engaged to an x-ray technician and radiographer was, was, was dangerous ground, but I didn't know about it. But in a world of fake news, as is a term we, we hear in the last couple of years, it's always hard to determine what is true and what is sometimes twisted, what is sometimes just inaccurate, doesn't have all the truth, and what is sometimes just an outright lie. Uh, recently, uh, with the change in Twitter, the Twitter files have been released and some journalists have done some independent digging on documentation between the previous management of, of Twitter and both the administration from both Trump and Biden governments in America especially. And they showed not just a cover-up on a grand scale of various political scandals and all those sorts of things, but also just a suppression of anything the governments or particular media agencies even didn't want people to, to talk about or know about was suppressed. Uh, it's hard to know who to trust. It's hard to know what is true. What can you know? for certain, because it's one thing to go around wearing a, wake, a, f a fake wedding ring or engagement ring. It's another thing entirely to, to go around believing a lie, to trust that something someone has told you is accurate and truthful. So what do you actually know is true? What is the one source you can go to and know, I know this is true, I can base my life on this, I can go deep into this. Well, there's only one source of truth we can have that amount of confidence in, and that is the Word of God. But there's this great need for discernment, and that's what we want to think on this morning. What is discernment, and how do we need to grow in it? But discernment is, so you think of it, the skill and accuracy, one person put it, the skill and accuracy of reading a character someone's character, and the ability to detect and identify the truth. Or, it's the quality of being able to grasp and understand what might not be immediately obvious. Some of those seem like hard things to, to work, but it's a discipline. We have to work at this. We have to grow in this. We're looking at a broad overview of 2 Peter uh, in last week, this week, and next week. 
a very broad overview, if you feel like that was a lengthy reading this morning. It was, but hopefully beneficial. We won't be digging into all of that. We're looking at an overview of what it is to grow as followers of Jesus. Last week, we considered what it is from chapter one, to, to grow in relying on God's divine power and his precious promises. This week, we want to uh, see that we all need to grow in discerning spiritual truth. Hebrews, four, sorry, Hebrews 5, verse 15 talks about this is the mark of growth and maturity and stability in those who follow Jesus, that they grow in knowing the difference, in discerning the difference between good and evil. And one of Peter's clear aims in writing to Peter was the same. He wants believers to know the difference between truth and falsehood, between good and evil, from just to know the difference between true spiritual authority and false teaching. And that kind of stability requires putting down roots in one true source of truth, to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To put down deep roots so we're not swayed backwards and forwards by every wind of doctrine. Because to go through life without discernment, without growing in this, this area of evaluating right and wrong, truth from lies, to go through life not bothering about what's right and wrong, you picture it as driving down a country dirt road at 100 k's an hour without your lights on in the dark. That's what going through life without discernment looks like. There's only one way that can end. That's in destruction. And on the path to destruction, you'll just be chasing dust. So just a, a side note before we start as well. As much as we want to grow in discernment and we want to develop really good habits of understanding uh, right and wrong, truth from falsehood, I think there's also a great danger that we obsess about discernment. I think there's great danger in setting up your own discernment uh, ministry or calling. Anyone that has come to me at times, and again, lessons from previous life, working in a Christian retail bookshop, you learn about discernment ministries, some of whom are valuable, some of whom are not. Um, and you can quickly gauge those who are not helpful because they were obsessed with certain things and it was unhealthy. There's two modes of advice I'd give just as in this sidebar before we get started about that, um, that I've learnt from others. Those things can go wrong quickly when you're obsessed with it. So two examples, one from my dad, one from a previous pastor. My dad used to say about counterfeit things and about false things, bank tellers learn uh, what's counterfeit and what's real as far as handling banknotes by never touching the counterfeit. So when they have this big stack of cash apparently come through, they, they count it up, they'll know immediately when one's fake because they've never felt it before. They're not sitting out the back of the bank handling all the fake ones and getting immersed in the fake notes and playing with Monopoly money. They're not doing that. Their exposure is to the real. At least that's the story Dad always told us. The other example as well of the danger of going down the path of just being obsessed with discerning evil and, and falsehood is another um, previous pastor used to say, if you just eat peppercorns, your breath will stink. If all you're devouring 
is I'm going to get to the bottom of this issue so I can point out the wrongs in these Christians over here and that church over there, your breath will start to stink. No one will want to be around you. You'll start to become more isolated. You won't care about the global heart and love of the church. You won't care about Jesus' heart for the church because all you're obsessed about is your version of things. That's just a couple of sidebars. There's, we need to grow in discernment. We don't need to grow obsessed with these things. We want to focus on truth, if that makes sense. So as we dig into the text, as we overview uh, what we've read this morning, Peter outlines the need for discernment and to grow in it, um, but he, he tells us and gives us the marks of truth we need to follow. So he gives us some marks of truth, and then he gives us some marks of falsehood which we don't follow, which we should not follow. And along the way, we're just going to put some warning labels out there as, as we do this. So when we talk about following truth or following falsehood. So Peter, in verse 16, he says straight away, one of the first marks of truth is that we have not followed myths. We have not followed myths. It's the first mark of truth that we look to is it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. In Peter's day, there were many myths and lots of mythology around. Uh, it was part of the culture. It was part of their, not just their entertainment, but even their, their worship. Uh, there were stories told of, of how the world began and how humanity began and, and what makes people tick and how the gods interact with humanity. All those si- sorts of things were told in Uh, Roman world and Greek mythology. They used to explain everything from science, philosophy to even religion. Myths were everywhere and still are today. But in Peter's day, he he was saying, all these characters that you've heard about, Jesus is not one of those. He's not one of the the gods who's come down and and mixed with, with humanity. He is the one true God. Because early critics of Christianity wrote off Jesus just another myth, just another legend. But Peter says, we have not followed cleverly devised myths. They didn't have to concoct a story. They didn't have to make something up. You know, they had, as we're going to see in a minute, they had personal experience with knowing and seeing and hearing Jesus. And they could teach it and present it as historical truth, historical fact. It happened. They didn't have to make it up. Truth doesn't have to be made up, doesn't have to be fabricated. I'm not sure about you, but I'm, I like Judge Judy. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. One of my favorite things that she does, when someone's just getting a bit off track in their, their testimony, loosely termed in that context, but when they're starting to get a bit off track, she'll often interrupt them and say, you don't have to have a good memory to tell the truth, because they're starting to, you can see they're trying to line details up, but still connect them to things they've previously said, and they're being caught out, and she'll often stop them and say, you don't have to have a good memory to tell the truth. If you've ever had to make up a story, uh, whether it's as a project or whether you're just someone trying to make up a story and deceive someone, hopefully not. But if you ever had to make up a story, you soon realise you have to get all the dots and the characters and the plots connected. You can't miss anything. You have to keep it all straight. 
And if you listen to someone you know who's habitually deceptive, someone who lies almost uh, for a living as a way of life, you start to pick up that doesn't line up with something you've said previously. That doesn't match. They've forgotten things that they've already told you and that doesn't line up. It's a myth, it's a, it's a story they've concocted. But when it comes to Jesus, Peter tells us, yeah, that's not the kind of thing we follow. So we know this is true because we haven't clever, cleverly developed a story that we have to keep straight every time we tell it. We don't have to guess it. We don't have to guess if he's come. We don't have to guess if he's returning. We know these things to be true. As eminent theologian Colin Buchanan has said, Jesus is no fairy tale. He's real as real can be. The next mark of truth that we need to follow is, is that of the apostles' authority and witness. And Peter gives examples of, one example of something he did witness firsthand. Peter witnessed many things firsthand, as did all those who were Jesus. He gives one here in these verses where he saw the majesty and power of Jesus and also the affirmation from heaven from God himself saying, this is my son, that of the transfiguration as we call it. Um, he saw the majesty of Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 16 tells us. Later on, verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice for we were with him. The mark of truth and authority in the church now, as it always should have been, but especially in the early church, the mark of truth and authority came from, whether you could link it to the apostles, those who were with Jesus. Early church leaders circulated and taught only what had the mark of authority of the apostles. Something could be directly linked to them by name or directly linked to their authority. Only those things were taught as truth, as what the early church devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching, because they were witnesses. And that was handed on and has been handed on all the way through because we have their testimony and their witness recorded for us. And gospel truth will always be marked by direct connection with the apostles' teaching. Peter himself, we'll think a, bit, a little bit more about it next week, Peter himself details Paul as having, um, Paul's writings as being scripture and having the mark of authority as well. Those who were sent by Jesus to teach and preach his gospel, given wisdom to do so. This means for us as believers when we're discerning these things, if we only follow what the apostles taught, we, give, we only give weight to what they taught. If anyone else comes with something original from what we find the apostles taught, that is something we can easily dismiss. It doesn't line up. So a warning label you can, you can throw out there in, in this regard is beware anyone who tells you they have divine inspiration or a special word from God. Especially a special word from God that is not a word that God has said before. 
Now, as an example of this, um, if this is the authority that we have, if this is the true thing that we, we follow, if this is divinely inspired by God and the Spirit gives us uh, understanding of it, an example of that might be a, a leader that once uh, said that I know of uh, several years ago. They were being questioned on area of sexuality and gender. And they said, well, at the moment, I trust this is the final word of God. At the moment. But who knows what the Spirit may do in time to come. False teaching. Error. There's nothing else that God's going to add to this. There's nothing else the Spirit will add to what's already been put in here. Warning. We follow what has been taught, what the apostles have laid down for us by, as they were moved by the Spirit to do so. The next mark of truth that uh, Peter sort of speaks to, it's the same sort of thing, but then he opens up to all of Scripture. They have the confirmed, the word, prophetic word more fully confirmed, the sure word, more sure word, as King James puts it. Not just the word from heaven itself, as God spoke, saying, this is my beloved son, but all the words that God has spoken through his prophets that were fulfilled in Jesus, the confirmed word. All of prophecy in scripture, all of scripture, in fact, comes from God. As he, by his spirit, chooses uh, men of his choosing to write down, to record faithfully what he has told them, even the things in history as it happened that God has moved people to record that we have before us. This is all God's word and it's all for us. Peter's call then is if we have a confirmed word that God has kept his word, all the things he said would happen by his prophets have happened, you do very well to pay attention to it, he says. You'll do very well to pay attention to all of it. Some might well say that, of course, I would believe in Jesus' power and glory and authority if, if I've witnessed firsthand the Mount Transfiguration or if God came down and spoke to me. Of course, I'd believe in God. But seeing as we only have a book with some words in it, which you know, has been handed down through millennia and could have been corrupted by humans, and yeah, you know, if that's all we've got, then I'll leave it. And that's the approach that many take, but Peter has something to say to those people. Fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled, the fulfilled word of God, if he said it and he's done it, it's fulfilled, is just as authoritative as God speaking directly from heaven. Just as authoritative. Spurgeon pointed out that we're okay with this in general life as well. We would take someone's written word just as much as their spoken word. We do that. Um, I have a, a letter that I consider special that written, was written to me by a family member many years ago that I've got tucked away in a special spot. And every now and again, when I want to read it, I remember that it's there and I need just a moment of feeling some love or encouragement, I pull that letter out and I read it. 
then I tuck it back away again. Now I still see that person, that person has said things to my face that expresses their love for me. I treat them both the same, the written and the spoken. I value both, but something that can be revisited, memorized, hidden away in my heart that I can go back to whenever I want it, have access to whenever I want. Something I can see is true, something that's proven true in my life, something that I've experienced is true in my life, is precious. So you cannot say that I would believe if God spoke to me. He has. And if you're not going to listen to this, you wouldn't listen to his voice if it boomed from heaven. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. The scripture, all of scripture, all of prophecy, the prophets in the Old Testament, all through scripture, proclaims Jesus as Lord, this humble servant king who lived and died and was raised to life again. That he ascended into heaven, that he's returning to judge, and that's part of the biggest problem that most people have, as we'll see next week. They deny that he's coming again to judge. We have this. No one will be able to say on that judgment day, God, if only God had spoken to me. He has. And he says he's, he's spoken and he's, we should pay attention to it because it's like a light shining into the darkness. It's how we're meant to live out, what we're meant to live our lives by is God's sure, confirmed word. It's the only hope for our hearts. The warning label, beware anyone who says God's word is, is outdated. It's irrelevant. It's powerless. Psalm 119, 105 tells us that God's word is a lamp to our feet, our feet and a light to our path. If we want to progress in the path of life, if we want to grow, we must have his word. We must pay attention to it. It also says that, that no prophecy ever comes from the will of man or their own interpretation their own source. Of Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Mormon church, uh, he claimed uh, direct inspiration from God, from special golden plates that an angel directed him to find, buried somewhere. They were buried in a secret location, so secret that he couldn't find it for a while, and he couldn't find it when he reburied them, I think. But these tablets were, were never seen by anybody else but Joseph Smith. And he dictated the Book of Mormon by staring into his hat at a special stone that gave him the interpretation of these golden plates. He also had extra revelations that came to him as a, a prophet, so-called, of special things that he had now authority to do, like get extra wives. No prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation or personal will. It, it just doesn't happen that way. God's prophecy comes from him. He is the source. The interpretation then would come from him and the fulfilling would come from him. 
the mark of true prophecy that we should follow is it will never, ever, ever contradict anything that God has said elsewhere. And it will always complement and be understood in the light of everything else that God has said. So we must be very careful that we cannot place the word of other people, cannot place our own personal experiences, feelings, even dreams or visions or opinions on the same level as God's word. And part of growing in our discernment is recognising the final authority to all of our life and godliness is found in the source of life and godliness, and that is God. Elevating anything else above that is fast track to error. It's that dirt road 100 k's an hour in the dark. So if we see then God's word as reliable, as sufficient, as fulfilled, as perfect, as clear, then we can't just treat it like a, something we learn just for our own head knowledge. We can't treat it as an intellectual textbook. We certainly can't just treat it partially and take the bits we like and leave the bits we don't like. We must treat this book with great respect, with great reverence. We treat it with, as a whole. We read it as a whole. We teach it as a whole. And we hide it in our hearts. The best way, and if all you remember from this morning is this, the best way to grow in discernment, to know truth from error, is to love God's word and hide it in your heart. Treat it like a letter from someone that you love. Return to it often. Only when we build our lives on God's word can we properly discern what is true and what is false and just defeat the deception that starts to come in from other voices. So it's the marks of truth that we follow what God has laid out. We haven't followed anything that's been concocted. We haven't followed myths. We follow what the apostles have taught. We follow the sure, confirmed word of God. Then what are the marks of falsehood? What are some of the marks of falsehood and the warning labels that come with that? The being scammed can be very demoralizing. I don't know if you've ever experienced losing money or paying for something you never received. Um, or just being lied to and manipulated and you realise after the end of some exchange or even after the end of a relationship maybe, I was scammed, I was duped. Chapter 2 verse 1 tells us uh, very clearly, just as God has had good prophets and true prophets who have done what he's instructed them to do and their word was fulfilled because it was his word as we've just looked at, just as there's those prophets, then there's also scammers out there. Spreading lies, deceiving. Just as uh, Peter has laid out, there's, there's, uh, we haven't followed myths. There are myths out there. People that are purposely fabricating something for people to be deceived by and tricked into. So, what are some of the marks of these false teachers? He says, 
One of the first marks, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, scammers are already, always just trying to, to trick and deceive. They're always sneaky. They're never going to call. You don't get a phone call that says, Hi, I'm a scammer. I'm just wondering if you want to pay this much. Oh, Australian Taxation Office, you know, something, blah, blah, blah. They're not like that. They're sneaky. They'll try and trick you. They'll try and trap you. And Peter says that's what false teachers are like. They are sneaky. You have to be aware that they've got a game that they're playing. They're trying to game you. They don't come with a warning label. They secretly bring in heresies. One commentator put it this way. They use a vocabulary, but they don't use a dictionary, if that makes sense. They'll use some of the words we might use, even some of the theological terms or names or titles we might use, but they're not using in, in the same definition. As an example of this, not that I'm just bagging on Mormons this morning, but just a personal experience when we had some Mormons come to our door uh, a while back. I remember speaking to this person for quite some time and they would lovingly and affectionately speak of Jesus. Very lovingly speak of Jesus and how attractive he was in the sense of being drawn to him as, as a wonderful, wonderful person. But they certainly wouldn't claim that he was God's only son. Jesus, they love, but they're not, he's not the Jesus we know. They would, the same person would also say, in a longer discussion that I had with them, yes, of course we can only be saved by God's grace. But then they openly spoke of saying, well, of course we have to earn God's grace. They would also say they, of course we accept God's word as the final authority, but they had an extra book on the end. They use the same terms, but not the same definitions. It's sneaky. It's deceptive. It's confusing. And confusion is the key part of any trap that these people, false teachers, will lay out. And whenever there's confusion, what do we do when we're confused? We're usually prone to listen to the loudest and most prominent and authoritative voice. Usually. And Peter goes on to talk about it. Now, most heresies, their first port of call is to deny Jesus, and that's what he says, even denying the master that brought them. But he goes on later in the chapter, he said they'll deceive and talk loudly. That's, that's part of what false teachers will do. It's a mark that they have. They'll try and drown out other voices. Verse 18 talks about them boasting loudly. Verse 19 talks about them enticing people. It's repeated a couple of times. And making promises. And they do all of this because they're out to trap, entice, deceive. And they're doing this out of a quest we see for their own sensuality. Their sensuality. Verse 2 talks about that. They want to deceive so people will follow their sensuality, their gain, their profit. Most spiritual scammers, if we'll call them that this morning, will present you a version of Jesus. They'll present you a, a version of your own personal Jesus. 
the Jesus who is just a good moral teacher, but certainly nothing supernatural about him. Or the Jesus who didn't really die on the cross, he just fainted. Or the Jesus that didn't really rise from the dead, it's, he's dead and his disciples are the scammers. The Jesus as well, this is more of one that's prominent today, the Jesus who has your back, no matter what. Even if you're knowingly going against what God has commanded. Jesus have your back, no problem. He's a good mate. Or the Jesus will, who will fit in with any other belief you already have. The compatible Jesus. He'll just slot into your life with all the other belief systems you have. Or the Jesus who will make you healthy, wealthy and powerful. Versions of Jesus are being presented to us all the time. We have to discern whether it's true, whether it's accurate. Dane Ortland talks about uh, beware of the decaffeinated Jesus. Beware of the fake Jesus. Anything that's diluted about Jesus. It's not Jesus less, he's, he's not, wasn't really the son of God, just a good bloke. The diluted Jesus. Or any other version that takes away his power, his authority, his, his majesty, his ability to die for the sins of the whole world and redeem and atone for sin. His power and authority to raise himself from the dead. Anything that lessens that ability of Jesus is not Jesus. It's not. Beware those who present a diluted, decaffeinated Jesus or a domesticated Jesus, a tame Jesus that isn't Lord, who's not returning as judge of all the earth. Beware. Beware as well the person who's restless with just Jesus. We talk about Jesus a bit too much, don't we? We had talked about the gospel last week. It's time to move on to something deeper, something more meaningful. We need to dig into this obscure truth over here. We need to crack some special code in the Bible. It's like, no, the only code that's in the Bible is a really, really clear one. Sorry. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. There's nothing unclear about it. It's hard it's not hidden. Beware the person who's restless with just Jesus. Now the mark of falsehood which was already mentioned is that they'll lead others into sensuality. Not just their sensual themselves but they'll lead others into doing things in the flesh, in the body. Following whatever path they take. And that's how we'll discern many false teachers straight away. Not just because what they teach is wrong, but how they live is wrong. And sometimes that is clear and sometimes it's not. They'll also exploit others because of their greed. Peter tells us that they will do that in verse 14. Not only will they have eyes full of, of lust and of all the things that are, are wrong, seeking to break God's command. They actually have a, an appetite for sin and they entice other people into it and they have hearts, Peter says, trained in greed. Counterfeit truth is a big business. You can 
sell all sorts of versions of truth. It's not actually truth, it's counterfeit. And people like make a lot of money out of it. And I think most of our media empires are built. One of the greatest lies, of course, of false teachers, not just the denial of, of Jesus' existence, questioning his virgin birth, his, his deity as the son of God, his death on the cross or his resurrection or his ascension or his coming again. Their greatest problem is that they don't want to follow what he has commanded. So they come in authority to themselves and entice others into a life lived against God. And they start, as well, the other big areas is they, they don't want God because they don't want his judgment. They just want his, his grace, his love. We'll, we'll do that bit, but not judgment. But Peter says, God has a way of discerning between the right and the wrong. We struggle at times to know where some of these lines are, but God doesn't. And he gives examples in chapter 2, verses uh, from 4 downwards. He gives several examples of God's perfect discernment that can rescue. He gives this example by starting to say all these if. If God did not spare the angels. If he did not spare the ancient world. But in the midst of that, he could rescue Noah. If He could rescue righteous Lot while destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. If all these things, if God can judge unrighteousness, unbelieving, unrepentant and sinful people, God can rescue the righteous and those who do believe. God knows how to rescue. He knows how to judge and he knows how to rescue. This is assured for us. It's a, it's a clear message that anyone who wants to live autonomously, separate from God, under their own authority, is in great danger. But it's a clear promise that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows how to rescue. He knows how to save. There's a word bandied sort of bandy about in recent times called deconstruction. The former uh, Christian performing artists, authors and even pastors have talked about their, their journey of deconstructing their faith. And there's a term they've given of ex-evangelical. One such person is named a guy called Joshua Harris who several years ago followed a path of deconverting and deconstructing from Christianity. Now, he'd started that journey because his first step was realizing some of the things he'd previously written or read had, had harmed some people, and there was some truth in that. He'd written some material that was taken too literally, and in some cases was made and used to abuse certain situations and certain people, legalism basically. Do good, God will bless you, those sorts of things. He realised that, and as a reaction to that, he sort of thought, well, I need to go and 
just need to check out a ministry for a while and go and study. So he did while he was there and still pastoring a church. One of his mentors he really looked up to was taken out of ministry because of their own personal poor leadership. He then went through his church imploding around this scandal. He himself, Joshua Harris, then went through a divorce. And at the end of all that, he started questioning everything. And his biggest problem that he came down to was he couldn't accept the part of the gospel that meant those who don't accept Jesus will spend eternity in hell. He couldn't accept the judgment of God as being fair or right. So he dismissed all of it. He's turned from his, his previous teaching, part of his main ministry was on sexual ethics and purity, to now embracing a entirely different approach to sexuality. In speaking of Harris's deconstruction and others who have done similar, one author spoke of the need the church has to engage with people who have serious questions and doubts. There's a need to do that, to engage well and engage in a healthy way. But they point out the main way of maintaining a solid faith when life throws everything at you, when you realise you have made mistakes, when those around you have made mistakes, when there's things in your personal life you're struggling with, when everything in life comes to you, what's going to be the factor that will keep you in your faith? And one author points out it's tough-minded Christianity, a commitment to the truth of who God is despite what's going on to us that he is good and he is loving. A discerning Christianity. This means we, we, we navigate the hard things of life in a healthy way, going deeper into what we know is true. Rather than searching for the answers that I want, I search for the truth and accept the truth even when it's confronting and uncomfortable. Peter closes this chapter with his warning of those who who will be enslaved. Those who will be enslaved if they choose to follow the path of falsehood, that road that's in the dark going to destruction. It's a dangerous position to be in. And our options this morning as we examine this is we can only follow one or two paths. We can go the broad way. We can go the way that it seems easy, it seems accessible. Many can find it, it's easy to find. We can go that path. Or as Jesus has instructed, we could enter the straight great, into a place that's harder to get into because you need to be poor in spirit, you need to be humble, you need to accept that you can't do anything to save yourself. It's the work of God. That's a narrow way. Not many people find it, not many people want it. But that is truth. Which path will we follow? Which road will we take? The one that's illumined with God's word, the lamp that will shine away or the path that's swift and leads to destruction.
our call this morning is to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to know him truly, to know his truth and to walk in it. And I invite you this morning to consider that, to consider the path you might be on, whether you have discerned rightly the path you're on, whether you've discerned rightly the way to live and whether you've gotten off track as well. We all need this morning to grow. We not only grow in the grace, in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, we grow in grace, seeing that God has provided all we need, all we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, we consider a lengthy and heavy passage this morning, but we, we see our desperate need for your truth and how it transforms us and grows us and keeps us. Lord, help us to love your word, help us to obey your word by your spirit, and help us to be on the lookout for falsehood, but be more concerned with the truth, to grow in our knowledge of you and your love for us. In Jesus' name.